Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday sermon series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. First Corinthians chapter 1, and we are reading from verse 1 through 9. And please, uh, just a disclaimer, do not ask me how long we're going to stay in this book. Because... Um, you know, it's, it's just like, I, I just want us to take time. I want to understand and really learn about what Paul has to say in regards to the church in Corinth. And I think uh, when, when, when God first led me to this book, uh, there was a lot of excitement and passion because there's so many similarities, so many things that we can really glean from, and, and all the ongoings and the lessons that was presented and taught to the Corinthian church. So, uh, we're going to spend the next few months. I'm just going to say it the next few months, okay? So um, hopefully this will be a good journey for us. Verse 1 through 9. Let's read together one voice, shall we? Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Sosthenes, Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus Saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and knowledge, even as a testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer before we begin? God, we thank you for calling all of us into this house, God, to worship you and to surrender our hearts to your word, God. God, we long to glean from you the truth. God, we long to glean from you the strength and the energy that allows us to live life to fullest, God. Allows us to live with the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we long for that. God, I pray as we probe through uh, the the, the Corinthian church, God, in the next few uh, uh, months, Lord, God, I pray that you would give us insight. And I pray that you would speak to us personally, and also corporately as the church, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you're ready to impart to us this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's, a, I think it's appropriate that we start today with Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, um, I'm going to Is it working? I'm going the wrong way. Scott, go the right way, man. All right. Always. Okay. So we want to start with Apostle Paul. Um, and he's originally named Saul. And he was named after the first king of Israel, which is obviously Saul. And he was of the tribe of Benjamin, just like King Saul. And he was a Jewish man. And he, but his father was a Roman citizen. 
And, and at that time, having the highest possible credentials in both Greco-Roman world. As, as you guys know, if you look at the world, there's a, there, there's a shift that happens. We're shifting of the governing power of the empire of the, of the known world to, to us. So at that time, if you know, uh, we, we, we know of the Babylonian kingdom, right? They ruled four centuries. And there's a shift in power from the, uh, the kingdom of Babylon is now and decline, crumble. Now that you, you see the rise and, and, and do, uh, dominion of the Persian Empire. And you see they rule for about 200, 300 years. And they're defeated by which empire? The, the Greeks emerge, right? Greeks emerge and at the helm of leadership of the man named uh, Alexander the Great. Greeks conquer all of Persia. So the Persians are top of that. I recently watched the movie 300. Great movie, by the way. So that, that actually happened. So the Greeks dominate for a couple centuries. Now, and the, the Greeks are emerging. So if you look at the map here, I mean, they really took over the entire... Okay, Hannah, you're going to have to help me out. It's not working. Okay, so if you look at the map, uh, the Greeks really took over the world at that time. So they took the entire, like even Central Asia, right up to the point where India is, modern day. They, they dominate the Persian world. They, they expanded their territory all the way to the Arab world, even to the parts of Africa, and beginning to conquer parts of Europe right before reaching Rome. So you see uh, the, just a, a conquest of the empire of Greece just taking over. But as all history tells us, that did not last forever either. Right around 100 BC, we see the emerging power of the Roman Empire. And they would eventually conquer uh, the Greek Empire, and they're in decline. Now Romans are ruling the world. So you see, they have taken over the world, right? You see, now we see the emergence and the conquest of the Roman Empire. That's right, at, right around the 100 BC and all the way leading to 300 uh, AD. So right at the time of Jesus, right at the time where uh, we know of the biblical world, now the Romans are in power. So when we say that Paul was uh, both dual citizen, of both Greece and Rome because of his relation to his father. So we're talking about like when Paul is talking about his credentials, he's really saying, you know what? I'm a big deal. I have connection. I have credentials. I'm validated. I'm fully affirmed in the Roman world. Not only that, you put me in the context of the, uh, of the Greeks. Hey, I can jive with them as well. So Paul, is, Paul boasts of his heritage and, and he's this uh, kind of big deal. And he was a highly educated man. He, his teacher was uh, by the name uh, Gamaliel. He was a grandson of Hillel. Hillel, by far in the Jewish world, was the most popular rabbi. Most influential, the smartest. He had the greatest influence of all of rabbis. So Paul was taught by Gamaliel, which was a grandson of the, the most rabbi uh, all of jewish world i mean this is kind of a big deal right so paul is a direct disciple of that if uh, just let me put it in some context right so you're a quarterback playing the sports of sport of football who is the greatest quarterback of all time say it it's okay say it. be confident tom brady Right? Some of you older folks, you want to date yourself, say, well, it's not Tom Brady. You haven't seen Joe Montana, right? Or maybe 
Steve over there. Uh, Joe Montana is by arguably another uh, GOAT QB, right? So if you're the quarterback, you're being discipled by Joe Montana, Tom Brady, and, and who's the hottest quarterback right now? Pat Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs, right? So you're saying you're being taught, discipled, you're being groomed by all of the top quarterbacks. So that, in essence, is Paul. So Paul had all the credentials, and he, had, he was highly influential. And his job, to that point upon conversion, his job was to arrest all the Christians and bring living hell for all the followers of Jesus Christ. He would go abuse them, arrest them, and make sure that they would not see remnants of Christianity or the impact of Jesus Christ. And one day, his life gets turned upside down, or should I say right side up. On his way to Damascus, he encounters the risen Jesus. So Jesus shows up, blinds his eye, reveals his identity, and he basically tells him, Paul, I mean Saul, your name shall no longer be Saul. I'm going to call you Paul. Now I'm calling you for the purpose of bringing the truth of me, Jesus Christ. Now I'm calling you to bring the gospel to the world of the Gentiles. And the Jews. This was revolutionary because when the gospel first happened, when the life of Jesus happened and he was crucified, he resurrected and he disappeared, right? So now it was up to the followers of Jesus to carry this good news which we call the gospel and to take and spread the word to all of the known parts of the world. At the time, mostly this good news of Jesus Christ stayed within the context of Of the Jews. But for the first time ever, Paul is now commissioned to carry this good news to the Gentile world. And and I'm going to show you why this makes more sense for us today. And we see Paul taking three different missionary journeys during his lifetime. So, can we get the next slide? Next one. Okay, so I'm gonna, you're going to have to look at me. Does it work now? Okay, it works. So we see Paul taking three separate missionary journeys during the course of, a, course of about 30 years. And during his second missionary trip, he ends up in a city called Corinth. And let me give you a little bit of more context here why this is important for us. When you concern, uh, let me talk a little bit about uh, the city of Corinth. If you read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 18, you see that Paul travels uh, north, west, right? And he, carry, uh, he takes two other people with him. And he's basically going there to spread the news of Jesus Christ. As we say, preaching the gospel. Corinth is about 50 miles south of uh, Athens, you, you see Athens is the capital or the center of the, the, the Greek world. So um, Corinth is actually located 50 miles, and it's a narrow strip of land, uh, kind of the peninsula. So think of a two-mile length, two-mile length, a long strip of land. But it was a very important city, and because it's surrounded, it was served as a connector of the, the, of, of the known Greece and also the southern region called the Peloponnesus. And so Corinth was a very strategic location. And although the golden age of Corinth was about five centuries before Paul's visit, 
Corinth had enjoyed a return of prominence right around Paul's time. So to give you a little bit of history of that loca- uh, of Corinth, um, and the city just really thrived. Because of its strategic location, it was a connector. During the, Greeks, uh, during the Greek empire, it was, it was literally the central location for all of its Greek empire. Now, when the Romans took over, it served as a main hub, connecting the world of Europe, Asia, and parts of Africa. Uh, 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 Corinth literally sat at the center of both empires. So you see a lot of just attention being poured into this place. And 46, 44 BC, uh, the city had uh, initially been destroyed because of some uprising. And Julius Caesar, the the Roman emperor, personally takes attention and restores the city. And they call Corinth the praise of Julius. And so Julius, Caesar himself, pours a lot of attention to the city. Did you know that in the first century, uh, the first century Corinth's public marketplace was larger than any other marketplaces in all of the Roman Empire? So you you saw the map. The Roman Empire expanded quite large. Of all the places uh, commercially, Corinth was at the epic center, meaning there was no marketplace that was bigger than the one found in Corinth. Corinth. And they say by the time Paul had reached Corinth at 50 AD, they said it was the most beautiful, it was the most modern and industrious city of its size in all of Greece. And we also know, reading from the book of Acts chapter 18, by the the time Paul goes there, uh, there's also a Jewish synagogue. The Jews were, uh, they were experts and going to different parts of the world. So by the time Paul arrives there in 52, uh, 50 AD, there's already a Jewish synagogue. Guess who was the, the, the chief priest or the chief leader of that synagogue? A guy named Sosthenes. Who is Sosthenes? We read it in verse 1. He's actually described. He's actually the one writing the words of Paul. So Paul is saying, so if you, if you reach a certain status, you don't write your own books. I've never written a book, but, but I'm pretty sure, actually, if I'm having to write a book, I probably have to write everything myself, right? But if you reach a certain status, this is what I've heard, you just say what's on your mind, and someone else is doing the writing. How many of you guys know that? So Paul is just pulling his rank, and he's, this, this is what he's doing. And Sosthenes, who's described, mentioned in verse 1 here in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he was a chief priest. He gets converted by Paul. So he comes from now, he was a Jew, now he gets proselytized, now he becomes a Christian, and now he's ministering together with Paul. So you see, I mean, the Corinth was just a glorious, glorious city. It was advanced in commerce because of its strategic location, connecting Asia uh, with Rome. And there was a ton of attention throughout the centuries, going from empire to another empire. Corinth actually not only maintained its prominence, it actually continued in its growth. Uh, popularity and its influence, it continued to flourish. Not only that, not only was Corinth a focal point of commerce, but it was also a melting pot of all religions as well. Because of the impact of all the businessmen, all these people traveling, Corinth also served as a melting pot, epicenter of all religions. I mean, talk about all the gods available at the time. 
Corinth was a city to be at. They had a Corinth uh, boasted, I guess we can say. They had a temple of Poseidon. Poseidon is what? The god of the sea. If you want to UCS, this is a proud mascot, a pagan god you serve, and, right? So temple of Poseidon was found there. Um, uh, excuse my pronunciation here. Uh, Asclepius, uh, the, the god of healing, and his daughter Hygieia. Uh, they had a temple for her. They had a temple for Apollos, right? The, the, the sun god, another very powerful god. Uh, they had a huge statue, uh, bigger than 180 feet, 80, 80 feet in its width. They had a huge statue right in the center of the city. Of course, by the time Paul reaches there, uh, uh, the, the only remnants of this sun god uh, statue. And, and then, to, to top it all off, uh, Corinth was uh, the place of... Uh, the goddess Aphrodite, uh, Eros, what we, we know of as a Greek goddess of what? Sex, right? Pleasure. And, and this temple sat at the highest point of the city in Corinth. And, 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 and people worshipped this goddess. And guess what they did? Their worshipping of this sex god meant what? Having sex in the temple. And this act just pervaded the entire city. And this went on for centuries. So, I mean, think about it. By the time Paul was there, the temple was, uh, uh, the temple was already kind of a ruin and, and kind of whatever. But the, all the remaining prostitutes that served at this temple prostitutes during that time, guess what they were doing? They were in the streets doing the same thing that they had been doing for centuries prior to Paul's arrival. So when we think of the city Corinth, you think about, man... Just think about all the wealth that had been uh, uh, shown there. Think about the richness in culture. Think about entertainment. People lived for pleasure. There was no shortage of things to do in the city of Corinth. And Corinth became synonymous with pleasure, corruption, the uh, apex of human pursuit. So what kind of people do you imagine the people of Corinth to be? Pursuit of self, pursuit of wealth, self-indulgence, and this marked their culture. And they were very proud of that. They had been well accustomed with attention, being at the focal point of the world. There is no need for anything. We don't need God. We ourselves are gods. We will do whatever it is that we want to do. Does that sound like a place that you and I know of today? Think of this. Center of commerce. The entertainment capital. Known for prosperity. At the same time, for its immorality. A place where dreams and pleasures are pursued no matter the cost. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking of Los Angeles. (laughs) I'm thinking of California. If we can agree on that, I'm thinking about the USA. I'm thinking, I mean, that's, is, it, and anyway, that's besides the point. So Paul comes to Corinth in 50 AD during his missionary trip. And he preaches the gospel. And by God's grace, many people come to know Jesus. And the church is established. And guess what? Talk about favor. Talk about God doing something special, something, something for the people of Corinth. God moved powerfully. 
And of all the things that all the churches that Paul planted at that time, all the, all the things that could have been known for, the church in Corinth was known for the supernatural power of God. This church boasted of spiritual gifts. This church at every church service, they saw miracles. They saw healing. They saw prophecies. They saw words of knowledge. They saw discernment. They saw a gift of teaching and, and just amazing things happening. God totally favors this church. Right? Check this out in verse 4 through 7. This is, th- these are the words of Paul, okay? He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him... You have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Check this out. You do not lack any spiritual gift. Hello? When Paul is looking at this church, this is what Paul notices. He says, when I look at you guys, you guys have so much favor. You do not lack in anything. You have everything that you have ever asked for. You have everything that all you need is there. God is given to you. So this was, I mean, and and you try to play that with already a puffed up sense of their self-ego. Already they're proud. They've never really had to ask anyone for anything. They have everything at their disposal. Now God comes and just blasts on them and you see favor You see ministry just flourishing to no end. And this is where we run into the first problem of the Corinthian church. If there was a major problem in the Corinthian church, I will say this. They had an overestimated view of themselves. So the Corinthians had this sense of entitlement, this blessedness, meaning, oh man, we good. We good. There was confidence, and that confidence led to pride, and that pride led to stubbornness, meaning you can't touch me, you can't tell me what to do. They had this sense of invincibility, untouchable, unteachable, pride then leading to blindness, and they began to act up. Because guess what? What happens when you are too proud? Guess what happens when you say no one can touch me, no one can teach me? Guess what? You began to do what you think is right. You discern for yourself what is right and wrong. You begin to set the priority of your life. And you begin to just do everything that you can think of. So what did they think? They thought, we've made it. We're blessed. We have everything we have ever needed. So we will choose for ourselves what is good. That's set at the center of the Corinthian church. So Paul is saying, at the introduction of his letters to the church in Corinth, just listen to these words. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Their Lord and ours. The word Christ, the word Lord, in that short passage appears too many times. 
And it's as if Paul is reminding the church in Corinth of what their true identity is. It's as if Paul is reminding them, you're not who you think you are. You think you've made it. You're so puffed up. You're so arrogant. You're so proud of what you've done and what you're doing and who you have become. But it's reminding the church, Christ, he's saying, and he even affirms them, reminding that they're God's people, sanctified. You are the church of God, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. He's saying, it is not you, it is God who established you. It is in Christ Jesus, and only in Him you have everything. Read verse 5 with me. He says that in everything you are enriched in Him. In all speech and all knowledge. Are you getting this? Paul is saying the state that you are in, the favor that you have seen, the very thing that has caused you, all of you to act up, remember who you are, the things that you have, the things that you have seen, the things that you have had access to. It's because God has released everything to you. It's in Christ that you have been enriched. So the first problem of that church is what? They just had an overestimated value of themselves. Second problem is this. Overrealized eschatology. Say with me, overrealized eschatology. Eschatology is a theological term that refers to the st- study of end times. Ology, you guys know, it's something to do with study school, right? The first part of that word, eschaton, uh, eschatology, is, comes from the word eschaton, which simply means the end times. So when we hear the word eschatology, it's referring to the study of end times or knowledge or understanding concerning of the things to come. So let me explain what it means when we say over-realized eschatology. Um, It was widely accepted that Jesus Christ was to return. You guys know that when Jesus came, he died on the cross, he's resurrected. But by leaving the earth, being, while being ascended, he says what? I'm going right now. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. In the meantime, Holy Spirit will be with you. But guess what was the last promise that he gave to the people and the followers of Jesus? He said what? What did Terminator say? I'll be back. It's okay. Uh, uh, Jesus said the same thing, or Terminator copied Jesus. Jesus said, I'm gone for right now. Peace out, but I'm coming back. That was the promise that Jesus left. That's what, that was the last, <laughs> those were the departing words of Jesus. When the followers of Jesus said goodbye, every single one of them were waiting for Jesus to come back in time. Because that's what Jesus said. So uh, that was his promise, right? So Christians, all the followers, waited for Jesus to come back and reign as king again. So what was wrong with the Corinthians' mindset in regards to eschatology? What did they think that was so off from the truth that Jesus conveyed? And this is, the, this is where the problem lies. I'm, I'm going to quote you from the book that I just uh, gathered this from. They not only looked to the future and looked to the present, But the present is so significant for them that they have already begun to reign. 
They're in the millennial kingdom right now is the idea that Paul is underlying here. Instead of looking to the coming of Jesus Christ, meaning anticipating to enter into the kingdom of God upon the earth, they began to live as they were in the kingdom now. So these guys, instead of waiting, longing for the arrival of second coming of Jesus, they lived as though that kingdom had already come. They lived as though that they're already reigning with Christ because when they looked around, they're still living. As far as they're concerned, they're still resurrected. They see the power. They see the the, the influence of Jesus in their lives. So that's literally the mindset that they had. What they perceived of the kingdom, of of kingdom to come, was that men or the people would have the things that they lacked in in the life here on earth. They would have all the food, all the pleasure, all the luxuries that they're in the kingdom already. So if you have that mindset already, and I'm living right now, what is my priority? My priority is what? I'm going to enjoy the best food that I can find. I'm going to do everything that I want to do. So they have been filled with this false sense of eschatology, meaning the kingdom of God is already happening. So I'm going to live. I'm going to live as though I'm already reigning with the king. So what do they think? They thought the future was already here. The present mattered far more than the future. This is where we get the term, eat, drink, and be merry. By the way, that's not just a song, okay? That's actually a direct quotation from the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. So this mindset of eat, drink, and be merry, let your stomach be your gods and fill your appetite, this became the the, the cry and and the, the life mantra of the people in the church of Corinth. So proud, right? So, man, this is it. And the problem is, Paul is saying, Paul kind of uh, pokes fun at them in chapter 4. He said, you know what? Apparently, you've already, uh, uh, he sarcastically refers to them as, you are already being kings. You're already kings. And he says, I wish that you guys were kings so that I might also reign with you. So Paul is addressing this false notion that the Corinthians bought into, and they were living their lives. Look at verse 7 with me. I I don't have these verses with me on the slide, but read verse 7 in your Bible. So that you are not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, my prayer is that you would uh, wait eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is, guys, is that Christ had not yet returned. And Paul reminds them. He tells them that the rule of Christ has not come yet. And there's still injustice. There's still suffering. There's still sin prevalent in our lives. Christ has not yet returned. He's saying, if the resurrection hasn't happened yet, then you better watch out because Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes, he not only comes to reign with us, he comes to judge, he comes to weigh and balance everything that you and I have done. Check this out, guys. 
what you do today matters because what is to come hasn't happened yet. If I can be honest, many of us do not have this over-realized eschatology. When I think of the Christians today, I don't see people like you and I don't have the problem thinking that the reign of Christ is already here, right? The problem that you and I face is that we don't think the day of the Lord is coming, where Jesus is actually literally coming back. We don't think that day exists. We don't think the day of judgment exists. We don't think the day of Jesus' second coming is actually happening. We live as though that will never happen. Because if you live for the now, and you lack the understanding of what's to come, your current life will be dominated and, and, and be ruled by the, you pursuing the, uh, the desires and the pleasures of the world. Because how you live now is determined by what you believe about what's to come. Let me say that again. How you live now is determined by what you believe about what's to come. Let me explain what this means. And it's the time that I learned a very valuable lesson of the day of the Lord when I was in junior high. Um, back in my days, when I was a younger kid, my, some occasions my parents would leave. Uh, you know, I have an older brother, older sister, much older than me, so I often stayed home. So on the weekends, or sometimes the weeknights, praise God, sometimes, said, they would come home from work and say, Scott, Mom and, Mom and Dad, uh, Dad and I are going to go out for dinner, and we don't know what time we're coming back. But as I'm leaving, I better, you better make sure that you study, you finish your homework, and whatever happens, uh, don't watch TV, study. Uh, mind you that this was at the time, we had no internet, uh, there's no PlayStation, um, there's no like peace, there's, no, there's nothing, you literally watch TV was the only entertainment I had, right? But I, I would look forward to these times because when mom and dad are not in the house, guess what? Oh, it's freedom for me. It's like, man, I get to be the king of this house. So I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I try to hide my excitement when they say I'm going to be gone, right? They're going to be gone, right? So like, yes, hurry up, be gone. Like, I don't even know what time they're coming back, but as soon as they leave, guess what I'm doing? I'm going to the living room. I'm watching TV. I just like indulge, right? And one of these nights, my parents came home too early. I did not anticipate. I, it just didn't cal- it, I don't know what happened. Maybe the plan got canceled. Maybe uh, something happened. And I'm hearing their voices approaching the entrance of our apartment. And like I'm sitting in the living room, lounge, just like watching TV. I'm literally kidding out less than three, th- three seconds. I'm off the couch. TV's turned off. I'm on my desk, sitting down, books open, pretending to be studying. And I'm controlling my breathing. And I hear the door opening. I, my mom and dad are in the house. They're coming. They take about a minute or so. They come in to my room. And I don't, you know, when parents come in, you're not supposed to look back. You're supposed to not acknowledge it because you're busy studying. So they come in, totally, I'm just like studying. Say, oh, Scott, hey, how's, how's everything? Did you eat? What'd you do? Say, what'd you study? Oh, I, what were you doing? Say, well, I've been studying, Mom. 
I'm just like not even thinking back, right? So, hey, son, uh, so what were you really doing? So what are you talking about? I've been studying. I told you I've been studying. So I'm kind of like giving attitude because like she's questioning my integrity, right? Because you're supposed to. You, 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 can't, you can't let them bluff you like that, right? So I'm like, what do you, what do you mean what about you? I've been, look at me. I've been studying. I said, son, I'm like, this conversation is dragging along way too long. This was not part of my plan, right? This is not in my playbook. I said, son, tell me again what you've been doing. My heart's already beating. My knees are like clapping. Mom, for the last time, I've been studying this whole time. I said, son, why don't you get up? I'm like, what's going on? I said, why don't you come out with me? And, and I'm following her, right? I have no idea. What is she doing to me? Is she going to like kick me out of the house right away? She goes to the living room. And she goes to the TV. She puts her hand on top of the TV. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I said, if you've been studying this whole time, why is the television hot? What is that? What kind of witch? What is? Like, I'm like, oh, my God. Literally, I'm like, crud, I've been caught, right? And I said, you've been watching TV this whole time. I know. Mom knows everything. She said those words. I don't think she hit me or disciplined me. I walked back to my own room, just walk of shame. Having no rebuttal to my mom's, it's not even accusation, it's like pronouncement of reality. So so I learned that day, right? Guess what's happening after? I mean, at that time, I was like terrified, petrified, and stupefied by her, right? I mean, In someone's words. I learned my lesson. From then on, when the same scenario would happen, when mom and dad said, you know what, Scott, we're going to be going, right? Guess what I did? I mean, I'm not going to lie. I didn't go from that to like never watching TV ever again. But guess what? I got smarter. I would watch for like, I would watch TV for like maybe 30 minutes. But guess what? I spent more time turning off the TV, being in my room, Pretending to study, getting ready, guess what? Because I knew mama was coming back home. And when she came home, she would ask me, Scott, what were you doing? It got to the point. Are you guys laughing because you feel sorry for me? You're laughing because you did the same thing. Please say you did the same thing. Because that would make me feel great. Guess what? Over time, it changed. My mindset changed. I began to behave as though anticipating of the coming of my mom. The thought and the understanding of what's to come greatly affected the way I behaved at that moment. Come on, somebody. How you live now is determined by what you believe about what's to come. You see, for us Christians, we're supposed to live today As we believe of what's to come in the future. You and I are supposed to live today. Fully anticipating that Jesus Christ is coming back one day. And when we have the understanding. It should no longer be fear. Granted. Yes. Our hearts are immediately filled with fear. 
of the thought that Jesus is coming back. But when that fear settles in and the truth sinks deeper, there's a sense of joy. There's a sense of, you know what, Jesus, I've been ready this whole time. I'm not anymore ashamed of the things that I've done. Jesus, I actually took the time to prepare for your coming. Guess what? I've been doing my homework. The books are actually open. Guess what? I actually stopped watching TV. I actually stopped messing around with my life because I knew that you were coming. The truth is that we don't think about the day of the Lord. Church. I'm not a very studious person. I was never one. But during that time, you could tell who was coming home by the way that you observed my behavior. Church, when the world, the non-believers, the world looks at us, they're supposed to get the sense that someone is coming. They're supposed to get the sense that someone important is coming in the way that we live our lives. That we are not completely immersed with pleasing ourselves. That our focus is not just fixated upon how we can satisfy, satiate the needs that we have. They're supposed to look at us and say, man, yeah, in the light of how you guys are living, in the way that you're treating your bodies, in the ways that you're treating each other, man, like someone important must be coming. That responsibility falls on us. How else is the world supposed to understand the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now let's get really personal here, direct. If we were to examine our individual lives, my life, your life, not only day to day, but hour to hour, would there be a sense that Jesus Christ is coming back? You know, as long as I've been a believer, it's now 26 years or something like that. Um, my prayer, especially all the more, one of the first prayers that I prayed as a kid, and the longest prayer is now, because I still pray that, I pray that Jesus doesn't like, because no one knows the time, right? But I'm praying, I'm hoping that Jesus catches me. He comes back when I'm doing good. I hope <laughs> the, the moment where Jesus returns here onto earth, that I'm not like doing something stupid. Like I'm not like late, like I'm like, you know, in my boxers watching TV, like I got chips, eating chips, you know, like, you know, just like totally just lost and just a loser. I'm praying that when Jesus comes back, I, personally, I hope it's during the service time. Because it's like, this is when I'm most presentable. Like, Jesus, 
all my focus is already on you. But guess what, guys? No one knows the time. Do we know the time? No. But you and I are supposed to live each moment, each day, as if Jesus is coming right now. Guys, what is in us that we do not fear the Lord? And we live as however we want to live. What's in us that we do not fear the Lord? You know what it is? It's what's not in us. It's because faith is not in us. It comes down to, we don't believe that Jesus is a man of his word. You see, when you believe someone, you not only believe about the qualities of that person or the things that person does, when we believe in a person, we believe in the person's words as well. Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'll be back, baby. We don't really believe the words that Jesus left us with. The day of the Lord is coming. Check out what Revelation 22 verses 12 and 13 says. And Apostle John is quoting Jesus directly here. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus said, I'm coming back. And when he comes, he comes not with a punishing axe. He comes not to condemn. He's not angry. Understand that. That's, that's, that's important because you don't want to live your life in fear. Like, you know what I mean? My teenage Christian faith life was dominated by this one movie called Thief in the Night. The worst movie ever made. The lowest budget. But the scariest Christian movie ever made. Literally talked about the rapture. I watched that when I was 13. I wasn't even Christian. I was scared. God, I don't even know if you're real, but I don't want, to, I don't want that. Right? But I live with this fear, right? But, but I'm not talking about that kind of fear. When Jesus comes, he says, I'm going to come back with my reward in full, and my reward is with me. But the truth is that Jesus is coming back, and he will hold on the balance the things, and he will weigh the actions and the decisions that you and I have devoted our entire life. How many of you guys know that your life will matter in the kingdom and the economy of heaven. And perhaps some of us are content with just punching the ticket into heaven. But every deed, every intention will one day be weighed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Tim Keller said, the Western religions and Christianity loves a God that is loving and forgiving, but not so much of the God that is holy. I think that statement is so true. 
when we think of God, we want God to hug us. We want God to embrace us. We want our God to accept us no matter what cost. But we conveniently leave out the part that God, our God, is a holy God. And we conveniently forget that our actions have consequences. Our decisions and desires absolutely matter in the eyes of God. If you read the subsequent verses of Revelation, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Kind of similar to the description or the traits that we studied about the church in Corinth. And perhaps it's not much different than the traits and the characteristics of the church that is today. I'm telling you, church, church, we have a problem. It's time for us to stop being so proud. Stop thinking that we're exempt from judgment. Stop thinking for once that that salvations and the devotion and the faithfulness of our parent generation actually carries on to us? You think that's going to be produced? Do you really want to be checked in into heaven and say, oh, you say, you know, but look at these guys. They did these things for me. All the prayers lifted up. That's on me, on my behalf. May God search our hearts today.